Um, we're in Luke 22. We, uh, we've been studying the Gospel of Luke for several years now, and uh, we're coming to the end. Uh, things are, are getting more and more intense. Uh, Jesus has, was in the temple. He has been in conflict with the religious leaders. Uh, last week, he was praying uh, uh, in, the, in the Garden of Gethsemane that the Lord would find another way for salvation to come besides him going to the cross. And yet he, and then he was betrayed by his best friend. And so here now we come to the trial of Jesus, uh, where uh, he stands uh, before the council of the Jews, and then uh, and then also before Pontius Pilate, and then uh, before Herod. And um, we're going to read that whole passage together, and then and and then uh, pull out a few things from it. So this is uh, God's word, starting Luke twenty-two, starting at verse sixty-three. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophecy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then he said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. And then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man, but they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, they sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before, before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who has been misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder, Pilate addressed them at one, once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed, so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. 
he, was, he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we pray that you would give us your spirit as we study your word. As Jesus goes before uh, the councils of men and is judged by them. Help us to see where we are in this passage. Expose our hearts that you would draw us to our Savior. We thank you for the great love that Jesus has shown us that he would go to the cross for our sins. We pray that the gospel would take hold of our hearts and would change us, would soften us, draw us near to you and draw us near to each other. So we ask for your spirit to be our teacher now, in Christ's name, amen. So uh, the, uh, this week we're looking at the, at the trial of Jesus, and there's something that's always been kind of frustrating to me about this passage, because, you know, Jesus has been uh, going through his ministry. He's alluded innumerable times to the fact that he is God. He is the God of the Old Testament who's come in man form, and uh, he's the, the Messiah of the Old Testament. He's the Christ. And now, finally, we come to this court scene, and he's standing before uh, these men, and finally he's asked really clearly, who are you? What, you know, what is your identity? The big question of his, history, who is Jesus, he's asked directly, and yet his answers are <laughs> frustratingly elusive, right? So you, if you caught that a few times... Uh, look at verse, in chapter 22, verse 67. If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. He doesn't answer. <laughs> and then again in, verse tw- uh, 20, in chapter 22, verse 70. So they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Hmm, you say that I am. And then again in, in uh, ch- verse 3 in chapter 23. And Pilate asked them, are you the king of the Jews? And he said to them, you have said so. This strange not being straightforward with an answer. Why don't you just give us an answer? Who are you? Um, why is he being so confusing? Now, I think there are actually quite a lot of reasons for that. Um, but I think that one of the reasons that Jesus is not being compliant in this passage um, is because there are so many things that are backwards in this, in this scene that's that's being played out. Because you think about who is Jesus? Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. The Bible tells us that all things were made through him. He, uh, he is the author, the inventor of trees and leaves and animals and everything in the universe. He's the, he is the one who holds our bodies together. It says that all things are held together uh, by him. And so here's this group of men who are putting him on trial and saying, you need to give an account to us. I mean, he's holding their faces together. I mean, if he wasn't holding their faces together right then, it would just melt into a puddle of flesh on the ground. He's holding their faces together, and yet they're trying him. <laughs> Things are backwards here. Why, why is he the one on trial when he should be the one judging them? They should be the one standing before him. And so things are, are, are backwards. This reversal of roles, who's the judge and who's the one that should be judged, this is something that's really, it's been in in human's nature throughout history, but especially in our modern period, 
we understand that God needs to give an account to us, not that we have to give an account to God. Uh, actually, I, I, if you turn to page three of your bulletin, I, I put a quote from you from C.S. Lewis. Um, this is a, from a, a little uh, article he wrote about sharing uh, Christians sharing their faith with non-Christians. And this is what he says. The Christian message was in those days unmistakably the evangelium, the good news. It promised healing to those who knew they were sick. We have to convince our hearers of the unwelcome diagnosis before we can expect them to welcome the news of remedy of the remedy. Now listen to this. The ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He's a quite kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. We have reversed the roles. And each one of us has a tendency to do that in our life that ultimately God needs to explain himself to me if, I, if he's acceptable to me. Now, let me just say that the Bible, over and over again, actually, God welcomes us to question him. Uh, you know, it, it's certainly reasonable as you're coming to the faith, there's things that you don't understand about the Bible to ask questions and say, well, this doesn't make sense, or why would God do this? I don't understand this. And actually, the, the Psalms are uh, quite explicit in the kinds of things that we can challenge God on and say, you know, why have you brought things into my life? Why, why, you know, why are you hurting me so bad? Why are such terrible things happening? God actually does allow us to question him. But in the Bible, underneath all of that, at the end of the day, we can only do that when we understand that, uh, first and foremost, I have to give an account to him. He is the judge. He is God, and I'm not. And it's until we understand... Uh, undo that reversal and we put him uh, we're the ones who need to come under scrutiny we're the ones who need to be examined until we understand that our lives will never change and so uh, what we have in this passage um, uh, is a path I think to how do we reverse the roles how do we let go of us being in the role of judgment over God and let him begin to judge us and how do we do that hopefully and so what I want to do, I, I, I don't think it's a simple answer, um, but I think that there's a brilliant answer in this passage. And so what I want to do is I want to look at that question really under three headings. First of all, to look at the ways that we judge Jesus. What are the ways that we judge Jesus? What does it look like when we're, when we're in the judgment seat? Second, what is the way that Jesus judges us? What is different? How does he judge us? What does he look for? What does it look like when Jesus is judging us? And third, the key to the reversal. How do we undo the reversal? How do we let God be the judge and put ourselves back into the, place, the people who need to be judged by him? Why would we allow that? So these are the three things we're going to look at um, today. So first, um, the ways that we judge Jesus. Now, in this passage, there are three people or groups of people or people that are standing in judgment over Jesus. First, there's the, uh, the chief priests and the scribes, the religious leaders, who they have this council, and Jesus has to come before them and, and give an account to their council. And then they bring him to Pilate. Uh, and, then, and then also Herod. Uh, Pontius Pilate was a governor uh, of Judea. 
during Jesus' time, and then, and then Herod was uh, the, the ruler of the northern region in Galilee, Jesus' hometown. And so there's kind of three scenes in this passage, and each of them show us something about the ways that we judge Jesus. So first, the chief, chief priests show us that they say that he is evil. The chief priest's judgment of Jesus is that Jesus is evil. Now, that's not a very common thing for most people to say, even in our day. You know, most people, when you ask them, you know, what do you think of Jesus? Is he a good, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Do you believe in him? Most people say, well, I don't believe in him. I, I, I'm not saved or I'm, a, you know, I'm not a Christian, but I think Jesus was a good guy. But um, what we see here is uh, this, this trial, this council, that the, the Jews who arrest Jesus, um, they beat him all night. And then they bring him before a council, and then they bring him to Pilate. And then in verse 2, chapter 23, this is what they said. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So even though most people in our culture don't say that Jesus is evil, that he's, he's a wicked man, um, actually these three complaints are three similar complaints that we would see in our day. First of all, that he's misleading people. That's very common, actually, for people to, say, to see that that's what's happening with Christians. What Jesus is doing with Christians is, you know, Christians are kind of irrational, emotional people who believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, and now they're intellectually trapped to this, and they can't, um, they're very regressive, they can't catch up to modern times, because uh, this holy book and Jesus' words are misleading them and leading them astray. So that's still, you know, even though we don't say Jesus is evil, the effect that he's having on his followers is the same. And also, the, the second thing, that he forbids uh, paying tribute to Caesar, you know, being a part of the, the uh, cultural movement of the, the culture that they're living in. Uh, you know, that's certainly one of the criticisms of what Jesus is doing in our day is that he's forbidding people to, to uh, follow the cultural trends, whether it's in, you know, sexual ethics or, um, or lifestyles, that Jesus is, is putting us uh, ethically and morally into a cage that we don't get to express ourselves and be who we are and be a part of the movement of culture and the progress of culture. And that lastly, he claims to be a king. He's, claim, he's demanding allegiance from people. That's probably one of the biggest criticisms that people have of Christians is that, is that, the, that Jesus is demanding people's allegiance. Uh, they have to bow their knee to him. They have to give up their freedom to him. And so actually, each of these criticisms are, are uh, criticisms that we still hold against Jesus is that it's not just that what he believes is, mis, you know, is misguided, it's untrue, it's, it's not the reality of the world. It's not just that, but that actually what he's doing is detrimental. It's wrong. It's, it's evil. And, um, you know, it's interesting that in this passage, these claims get charged against Jesus in front of these really wicked pagan rulers. And consistently throughout this passage, the message is <laughs> he's innocent. He's, I don't see anything wrong with this guy. And actually, that's one of the problems with saying that Jesus is really evil, is that if anyone reads the Gospels and reads the account of his life, you, you can't say this is an evil, insane man. There's pure sanity. There's love for people. He's welcoming the poor. He's welcoming the disabled. And he's inviting people together. And he's offering salvation. And he's speaking truth. And so, and even these pagan uh, rulers see that, that this man is innocent. And uh, so, you know, you might ask, uh, why are they so angry at him? If he's good, if, we're, if, if we know he's good, why, why are they so angry at him? Well, 
you know, I, some of you, uh, you know, you've maybe been in a relationship with someone where they're deeply critical of you all the time. And uh, they're constantly finding your faults and they're pointing them out and they jump all over them, uh, jump all over you. And they seem very self-righteous and hard towards you. And you say, why are they so critical? Why are they always tearing, tearing people down? Why are they always finding what's wrong with me? And if you know them fairly well, then you'd know that really probably deep inside that they feel uh, guilty. They feel like they're evil. And that this is a way of deflecting what they're feeling about themselves onto others. And that's one of the things that we can do to God is when we have a deep sense that there's something flawed and wrong with my life, we're going we're gonna to deflect it and put it on God and say, actually, God is the evil one. He's the wrong one. Jesus is the wrong one. And we see that so severely in this passage uh, that these people are, want him crucified. These are the people he came to save. These are the people he's been coming to heal and to welcome to himself. He want, they want him dead. And so first of all, you know, what are the ways that we can judge Jesus? First of all, we can say he's evil. But there's other ways. There's a second, uh, second way that we see with Herod is that Herod uh, doesn't so much say that Jesus is evil. He says that Jesus is fascinating, but he's not God. Herod is very interested. He says, there's a lot of, I have a lot of interest in Jesus. He's, he's uh, maybe a good person. Maybe uh, you know, he's doing something new, but he's not God. And uh, you can see this in verse 6. Look, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man, this is Jesus, was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem uh, at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So you can see that Herod is, oh, goody, I get a little time with Jesus. I've been hearing a lot about him. He's a very famous person. He does all kinds of miracles. Maybe I can bring him into my court. He'll put on a little show for me. Maybe I'll get a little pearl of wisdom. I can see his power. You know, he's very interested in power. Maybe I can get some power from Jesus. And, um, and I'll say that that's a common stance that we can have towards Jesus, too. What can I get from you? To show, show me some power. Do something. Show me that I, I'm willing to be very interested in Jesus. I'm willing to dabble in Jesus. You know, that, that's kind of how we are spiritually. We, uh, we have a little cabinet of, of, of all these kind of teachers and things that we draw from. And, and I'll get little bits from them when they're helpful to me. And, uh, but, I, but giving allegiance to anyone, giving over my allegiance to anyone, anyone besides myself, we wouldn't do that, right? And that's exactly what Herod's doing. Herod has a fascination with Jesus. Um, he's interested in what he can see and learn from Jesus, but there's, he, he wouldn't even think about Jesus' real claims about being the Messiah and demanding allegiance, allegiance from him. And the, the thing that Herod doesn't get, and that, that many, oftentimes uh, we don't get in our culture, is that the truth of God, the truth of spirituality, is not some bit of power. I mean, many of us, when we come to spirituality, we're looking for, where can I learn some bit of power that can uh, make me more successful, uh, make me earn more money, uh, make me have a better life? Where is that bit of wisdom or bit of power that I can get? That's not what the truth of the Bible is. The truth of the Bible is a person. It's Jesus. It's Christ. And we come to him, and uh, there's certainly all kinds of blessings we get from him, but ultimately what we come to is a relationship. 
And so uh, this is one of the ways where we're actually, if we say Jesus is good, he's interesting, he says all kinds of interesting things, he does all kinds of interesting powers, what we're actually doing is staying in a position of judgment over him. And we're going to keep him at arm's length. Okay? Third, third way that we, uh, that we judge Jesus is that we simply don't care. And this is Pilate's uh, uh, um, approach uh, to Jesus, is to simply not care. Um, and I, this is probably the most tragic. And, um, you know, all of us have a, a bit of this in our hearts, a bit of cynicism. It's to really not care uh, about the truth um, and not care about justice, not care about the meaning of the world, not care about what God uh, intends for our lives. And you see this with Pilate. Look at verse 20. Um, it says that Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found uh, in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed, so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. That's very interesting. I don't, I don't know if you've ever read this or read the gospel accounts and felt a little sympathetic with uh, Pilate. You're like, wow, look, he thought Jesus was innocent. He was trying to release him. He was trying to help Jesus. Maybe there was some faith in him. Maybe there's, you know, may, actually there's some Christian presentations of, of Pilate that make him out to be very heroic and that he was trying to help Jesus and then his, his hand was pushed and it was not his choice. And there's a scene in another gospel where he says, I wash my hands of this man's blood. And, uh, and we think, well, you know, look, Pilate really cared. But what scholars say is they study the rest of Pilate's life, they realize that this is very typical of Pilate. He actually doesn't care at all. The only reason he's trying to release Jesus is because he doesn't want to help the Jews. <laughs> he hates the Jews. And they're making a request of him, and he wants to find any way to reject their request. And this, this has happened in other, other scenarios with him. And so they say, uh, we want this guy crucified. And he, and he says, and they're saying, look, he's trying to start a revolution. And Pilate looks at Jesus, and he says, this guy's not starting a revolution. This is, they're lying. They're trying to get me to do something for them, and I'm not going to play their game. I'm not going to be their pawn and do what they want. So, no, I'm not going to crucify him. And we know from another gospel that finally they say to Pilate, listen, if you support this man, you're, you're, not, a, you're not a friend of Caesar. Because this man's uh, coming against your boss, basically. He's starting an army against your boss, and you better crucify him. And so finally Pilate says, all right, fine, I'll crucify him. The fact is, Pilate doesn't care about truth or justice or anything. He cares about himself. He's deeply cynical about the world, that there's any sense of truth or, or justice. And actually, you know, Pilate has been known historically to be a very mediocre uh, a governor because he had no convictions. He had no convictions about the world. He had no principles that he lived on. And, uh, and so he comes and he judges, judges Jesus not caring. And uh, one of the most tragic elements of when we put ourselves as the judge over God and the judge of our, over our own lives is that we run into what we get led into is a meaningless universe. Our lives and the world completely lose meaning. And uh, 
in each one of these judgments of Jesus, um, we are saying that we want to deal with Jesus as long as we can remain in control. So I, I just want to take a moment for you to ask yourself, which one of these do you see in your own heart, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian? We have tendencies. Do you, do you think Jesus is evil? Do you think, are you suspicious of him? That he really doesn't want good things for you. He wants to get control of you, and, and uh, he, he wants to make your life miserable. He's trying to deceive you. Even as a Christian, you might have that suspicion in your heart. Or that you're fascinated with Jesus, but you don't want to, you want to dabble in a little Jesus. I, I, I want to study him a little bit, but I don't want to give any allegiance. I want to keep him at our arm's distance, and I want to be the one doing the judging. Or maybe you even sense that cynicism of, I've just started to not care. I don't care about the truth of the world. And do you feel the tragedy of that? Well, um, the beginning of God's power in your life is when you're willing to undo that reversal and begin to let God be a judge. That might be something that's very scary to you, but it's actually the beginning. Uh, you know, Proverbs says um, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom is that when we stand under God's judgment, and uh, I think that Jesus in this passage is constantly inviting people uh, to allow him to be their examiner instead of them being his. Okay, so that leads to our second point. So first, those are the ways that we judge Jesus. But second, the way that Jesus judges us. And the way that Jesus judges us is by exposing our hearts. He exposes our hearts. And the way that you see that in this passage is how Jesus answers their questions. Remember, they're asking these questions in verse 67. It says, if you're the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. You see, he was, he, he takes their question. He says, look at your heart. You don't really care if I'm the Christ. You don't, you want to stand in judgment of me. What's in your heart? Do you see the stubbornness? Do you see the will, you're, you're, you're not even willing, you don't even have the courage to believe. Look at your own heart. And then uh, he says in two places, uh, you know, when they ask, they ask him, are you the son of God? And, and Pilate says, uh, are you the king of the Jews? He says to them, you say that I am. Verse 70, you say that I am. And then to Pilate in verse 3, you have said so. It's a very interesting way that Jesus says, yes, I am, I am the son of God. I am the king of the Jews. But he's turning it back to say, these are your words. How did you come to that conclusion? What, were you th what was going through your mind? What are you processing? What is happening in your own heart? And look at how different uh, Jesus' examination of us is than our examination of him, right? When we examine Jesus, we actually don't want to know him. We want to keep him at arm's, our, at, at arm's length. But when Jesus examines us, when he judges us, he wants to know what's in our hearts. Who are you really? He's actually drawing close to us when he examines us and when he, and, and when he judges us. And, um, and he wants to know not just what's on the surface of us, but what's in our hearts. What are the secrets about us? You know, there's a, 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 in Romans 2, it's talking about the final judgment when Christ will come and we'll stand before him. It says, on that day, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Jesus is asking these penetrating questions to ask, who are we really in our hearts? And it's really when we begin to see that our hearts are full of envy, of bitterness, of, um, of self-righteousness, of greed, 
of lust. Um, all of these things uh, of anger. All of these things, these aren't things that just happen to, you know, a few times a year they pop up. These are the things that are living and wrestling in our hearts and in our relationships every single day. And Jesus wants to go in and expose all of those things before us. And um, the question is, have you done that? Have you honestly let him examine your heart and what is really in there? Do we stand in, in, uh, in judgment over Jesus and make all these criticisms of the way that God's uh, ruling the world and the way that God wrote the Bible and never let him go and look at how all these things are driving our relationships and tainting all of our relationships every day? Have we allowed that to happen? And when we do that, we're going to know uh, that there's no way. How could I ever be judging Jesus? How could I ever be standing as a judge over him? I need God to examine me. Now, let me just tell you that if you, you know, that's not easy. And to really expose the reality of what's in your heart takes a tremendous amount of vulnerability, a tremendous amount of risk. And the question is, why should I let God have a look in there? Why should I have God have a say? Once that's opened up, what is Jesus going to do when he's in there? What is he going to say? What is he going to do with me? And, you know, actually, uh, just this week, uh, we took... Lucy and Will are too oldest to see the Avengers, uh, and which there, there's a there's a the main villain in the Avengers uh, is Loki, who's the brother of Thor, who is is coming to make the human race his slaves, and he, you know, he's kind of a goofy character, but uh, he's got these big horns that come out like this, and he's walking around the earth with this you know this magical staff and things. Um, but there's this one scene where uh, he is kind of giving humanity a taste of what's to come. And he, he goes into this really elitist, upper-class party, and he starts blowing stuff up. And uh, he has all the people in there fearful, and he tells them all to bow down and kneel before him. And he gives this speech where he says, you know, humans uh, always talk about freedom, but freedom is the thing that's making them miserable. And what I want to do is I want to subject you all. I want to enslave you all because that's really what you want. You all want to be enslaved. You want to bow down uh, before a master. And uh, that's really what will make you happy. And it's, uh, you know, kind of the the whole movie is about uh, this megalomaniac god from another universe who's coming to enslave all of humanity. But, you know, you listen to his speech, and he's saying, what you really want is to give up your freedom, and you want to bow down. And you say, well, you know, that's kind of what Jesus is asking us to do. (laughs) Isn't that isn't Jesus asking us to bow down and give up our freedom and that freedom is actually the thing that's making us miserable and that actually to, uh, to um, serve God and uh, to come under his judgment is actually what's going to be freeing to our life? What's the difference? What's the difference between Loki, the megalomaniac, and Jesus? How are we going to have the trust to go to Jesus and say, yeah, I will open up my heart. I will trust you with that, that there is going to be life in it. And, uh, well, I'll tell you, This leads to our third point, the key to the reversal. How am I going to get off the judgment seat and let God get on and judge me? How is that going to happen? And the key to the reversal is, of course, the gospel. The gospel is the difference. And, um, you know, as I said in in the beginning in this passage, everything is backwards. And uh, not only do you see man putting himself in God's place as the judge... 
But you see God putting himself in man's place as the guilty one. Look at verse 13. Pilate then called, them to, uh, called together the chief priests and rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done, die, uh, done by him. So Jesus has been charged with leading an insurrection, that he's gathering a, a group of followers who are going to take up arms and take on the Romans. And so there's, the Jews are saying, listen, you better crucify this guy. He's about to go to war with you. He's going to try to take over your power. You better crucify him. And again and again, throughout the passage, they say, no, he's innocent. And uh, actually, in the Gospel of John, you know, when Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews, Jesus answers him by saying, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I would not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. He's saying, that's not what I'm doing. I'm not trying to gather an army to, to take over the Romans. I have a different, I'm a different kind of Messiah. I have a different kind of project going. Jesus is not leading an insurrection, but look at what it says in verse 18. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. The people say, don't give us the innocent man, give us the murderer. Don't give us the innocent man, give us the murderer. And as a result, they say, crucify Jesus. As a result, we get this amazing verse in verse 25. Look at this. Pilate released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. The perfect picture of the gospel. Here's a man who truly was a murderer, and he's released, it says. He's set free. And Jesus, the one who it says over and over again is innocent, goes in his place and dies the death that he should have died, the death that he deserved to die. And so the question is, how do we let Jesus go into the place of the judge? Why should we let him expose our hearts and analyze our hearts? And why should we give him that kind of vulnerability? Why should we trust him? Why should we let him go into that place? Because he's already come into our place as a sinner in our place. He didn't just take our place as the judge. He also took our place as the condemned one, as the guilty one, as the sinner. And he died for us. And he was willing to go to the cross. And um, he's already reversed roles with us. Why should we reverse roles with him? Is because he's already reversed roles with us. That's the love of God. And so Loki from the Avengers... <laughs> He's right. Giving up your freedom is where life is. But there's no one that we should trust giving up our freedom except to this one who is willing to go to the cross for us, who didn't deserve it, so that we might go free, so that we might have freedom, that we might be released. So here, the key is the gospel. So the question of how are you going to let God judge your life? The judge is the one who was crucified for you because he loves you. You can trust him. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we're amazed at the gospel that Jesus would be willing to take the place of sinners that we might go free. Would that love grab hold of our hearts? 
And would we be willing for him to do an examination of our hearts, that he would wash us and that he would draw us close to himself. Jesus, we thank you for your great love. It's in your name we pray.